Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Megan Edwards-Collins. I am an assistant professor in the Occupational Therapy Department at Winston-Salem State University and editor of the Technology Special Interest Section Quarterly Practice Connection. I will be your moderator for this call. On behalf of the TSIS leadership team, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the AOTA TSIS virtual chat. You can participate in this conversation by telephone and or by computer. To listen live by telephone, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter call ID 138131. You can also participate in this call on the web by visiting talkshoe.com backslash tc backslash 138131. Of course, you can just listen to the discussion, but we encourage you to actively participate by submitting your questions for our guests. You can type questions or comments into the chat section of our TalkShoe page. We also open up the line a bit later so that you can ask questions by phone. Um, Today, we will be discussing the topic of the August 2016 TSIS quarterly article, titled Current Trends in Assessment and Technology. If you would like to download the article, AOTA members can go to aota.org backslash TSIS, look in the resources section, and click Technology Special Interest Section Quarterly Articles. Our guests this afternoon are the authors of that article, Bill James, Andrew Persh, Jacqueline Schwartz, and Jana Kaysen. Bill James is an assistant professor in the University of Missouri School of Health Professions, Department of Occupational Therapy in Columbia, Missouri, and the TSS chairperson. Bill, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Also joining us is Andrew Persh. Andrew is an assistant professor for the Division of Occupational Therapy at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And next, we have Jacqueline Schwartz joining us. Um, Jacqueline is an assistant professor in the Nicole Wortham College of Nursing and Health Sciences at Florida International University in Miami. Jacqueline, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And finally, we have Jana Kaysen with us today. Jana is an associate professor in the Auerbach School of Occupational Therapy at Spalding University in Louisville, Kentucky. Jana, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, So my first question is, what prompted you to write Current Trends in Assessment and Technology? Uh, So I'll start off, if that's all right. This is Bill. Um, We recognized uh, that the entire SISC, that is, all of the SISs, uh, had agreed that for this particular issue of quarterly practice connections, we were going to focus on themes of assessment. And we realized that uh, for technology, 
That's kind of a big question. There, there are a lot of technologies that get used in the course of assessment. Um, I'm trying to recall, I believe we even pointed out in the article things as simple as the goniometer. is a piece of technology um, with which we're, we're all familiar, uh, but we wanted to look at where technology is now and where it's going in the near future in, in OT evaluation. Um, so we, we looked around and we asked around, and the theme that we kept coming up with was uh, this idea of computer adaptive testing and how it relates uh, to some of these other platforms. So that was the initial impetus of this, but then we backed up and realized there were, there were more technology issues really guiding where we're going uh, with assessment. The, the really nice thing about using some of these technologies, especially the, the higher-end electronic technologies that we described in the, in the paper, are that they provide a lot of uh, flexibility for the end user. We're a profession that likes to meet people where they are, right? Uh, we want to be able to adapt to people's needs and assess the things that are most important to the individual. So these technological methods really give us the opportunity to do that, um, sometimes in ways that we've never really done before, uh, all the while doing what we love computers for, which is giving us consistency and predictability. So when we conduct an evaluation electronically or using technology, we know the format the data will be in. We know that we can track those over time. We know that we can use those to inform treatment plans and report to payers uh, and the industry as a whole, all while getting that flexibility that's so crucial to doing a good occupation-based assessment that we all know we need to do. So I think we recognize that that was the topic uh, that we found so interesting. That's what binds the various topics together in the course of the paper. Um, when, we, when we reached out to some of the profession that's doing these things, um, some people were, were more receptive than others. I'll, I'll say um, the, uh, Janet and myself are both uh, members of the TSAS leadership team, and we, we sought out to survey areas that we were interested in, and we reached out to people who are leading up some of these efforts, and the question was, we just don't know if the technology side of it is ready for OTs to consider uh, uh, how it's informing their assessment, to which our answer was, OTs are already doing this. <laughs> We're already using uh, technologically-based assessments, uh, and we thought it was good for the membership to know what's out there, what's coming down the pike, and how to incorporate those tools into the, into the evaluations and assessments that we're already doing. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, that's very interesting how you say you consider things like gonometry, um, you know, a piece of technology, and kind of some things that we are doing may not necessarily put under that realm, but really it is. Exactly. I think we, we have a tendency to, to think technology refers to high-end, high-tech devices, which much of our article does, but even the subtle pencil and paper, those are devices that are there to help us achieve a goal. That's the definition of technology. So I think it's important to consider we all use tech. It's just a question of at what level. Okay. Um, does anybody have anything they'd like to add? Okay. Um, my next question is, did you encounter any surprises in researching the literature for your article? Um, this is Jana. I'll jump, jump in here. 
Um, one of the areas I focused on in the article was related to telehealth applications or doing assessments remotely when the provider is in a different physical location than the client using technology. And while it was very interesting to kind of see the increasing amount of literature looking at um, specific assessments that we use in practice, one of the things that struck me even more as interesting was going to the websites of some of the um, publishers of OT assessments and just seeing the magnitude of work that's underway in digitizing many of our assessments and doing research to validate them for this remote delivery model or telehealth. So Pearson is one of the publishers that has um, launched a pretty um, aggressive uh, approach to, to digitizing stimulus, more so even in the speech uh, assessment arena, but they're also now beginning to do more in occupational therapy and then Western Psychological Services. So while the literature was interesting to see the growth there, I found um, at an even faster pace these publishers are quickly realizing that telehealth is uh, a means in which many practitioners will be able to utilize assessments, especially as we get the research to further support their use and practice. Yeah, that's that's wonderful to hear. It seems like telehealth is becoming more and more of an important issue to consider. And this is Bill. I'll chime in, too, if I may. Um, I, Janet made a point there that I think is crucial, that uh, you know we see these uh, types of, especially electronic technology-based assessments, happening across professions. Uh, and it, you know, it's no surprise that uh, maybe that speech therapists and physical therapists are helping to, to lead this charge. But what I find most interesting really is the intersection of the professions where we're working together to develop some of these assessments. I think of something like uh, the AMPAC. Uh, it's uh, an outcome measure that looks at all sorts of things, the, the activity measure for post-acute care. that uh, has domains looking at communication, uh, ADL activities, ambulation, transfers, IADLs, uh, a whole slew of, of uh, needs that is developed in part by an OT uh, and, and crosses all of these domains and crosses professions that uh, is a tool that I used clinically uh, along with speech therapists, physical therapists, case managers um, to start even discharge planning from day one and guiding our treatment. Um, so I think that the interdisciplinary nature and the fact that what's being learned in one discipline is so readily applicable to another, uh, I don't know that it was a surprise, but it was really encouraging. Okay. Thank you. Any other surprises when researching the mm -hmm. literature or that came up during the process of writing the article? I had noticed one surprise. So like Jana was talking about, we're taking uh, currently there's a lot of effort to take current assessments and then also adapt them uh, for computer versions. And I know like the Kells has done a good job of having um, more computer-based assessment. But one assessment, the bimanual assessment measure, looks at hand function on a tablet. And so as more and more of us start using tablets and smartphones, it's important that our hand function is uh, assessed in a way that we know how well people are going to be able to do the things they need and want to do, like use a smartphone or a tablet. And so while traditionally people may have used like the box and blocks or other um, hand assessment measures, I thought it was interesting that there are assessments now being developed specifically to look at hand function in the context of 
tablets and phones. And, and so not only does it leverage the benefit of different assistive technology using the smartphone where it, or where it can give us specific measurements, but it also will translate directly to somebody's daily function. Okay, <clears throat> which is what OT is all about. <laughs> and you know, I'll, sorry, I'll jump in yet again. I something else that both Jacqueline just said and Jana alluded to earlier is that there are groups and uh, there are companies and there are people who have already developed uh, assessments who are wanting to adapt those and who are working on developing computer adaptive tests and online delivery uh, of assessments. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the one thing that did really surprise me in preparing for this is how few of those people really thought that the tools were ready for prime time um, or that there was a sufficient, not a sufficient base of literature, that's there, but sufficient uh, evidence and use of their tools to, to be uh, talking about them publicly. And really, I, I think there's a, a very grassroots need uh, for these tools that are flexible and and at the same time well validated, uh, and uh, I, I think to the clinicians out there, my advice would be uh, to if there's a if there's a tool that you want an electronic version of, or that you want a higher tech version of, or an adaptive version of, uh, would be to reach out to people who are in positions to do that development uh, and make some connections. I think we're really at a point where. Uh, the people working on developing these tools want to develop them. The people who want to use them <laughs> exist, and now it's a matter of working together and collaborating to get the right tools built for clinicians in the field. Definitely. <clears throat> Some good advice. Okay. Um, what personal experiences do you have with um, the computer-assistive, computer-adaptive testing, online assessment delivery, telehealth, and mobile and wearable devices um, that you discussed in your article. So as I said, my, my biggest uh, use was the AMPAC uh, in a clinical role, uh, which I listed off the domains earlier, but it's a really nice tool in that it has uh, the ability to uh, be used as a self-report measure uh, or as a caregiver report or as a clinician report uh, and has been well validated for all three versions of the tool. Uh, so, well, it's the it's the same tool. It's just a different checkbox for who's completing the tool, and it's been well validated for all three uses. Um, and there, there's there's high consistency uh, and uh, inter-rater reliability, if you will. Uh, but the the nice thing about that tool, again, as I said, is that it's interdisciplinary. It's adaptive. It doesn't take a ton of time for an individual to complete or a team of clinicians uh, across disciplines can get together and, and answer the questions. And what I really found there was sometimes, although you know, I, I depend on normative data and uh, making sure that, uh, that we have consistent data, but sometimes it was the conversation that was generated. Rather than the objective uh, numbers that we were marking on the sheet, it was the conversation that, about what was informing our understanding of our clients' ability levels that really forced us to think. And sometimes it was completing that tool that helped us to recognize strengths that maybe we had missed on an initial assessment um, or to talk through deficits that one of us hadn't picked up on an initial assessment. I, I think it's a great tool even to use in part of uh, a team conference 
uh, and I have no stake in the tool. I don't use it today. Uh, I, I'm just very fond of the way it, it drove conversation uh, among our clinicians and then gave us clear metrics for improvement, uh, or lack thereof, but typically improvement uh, over the course of stay. So that's my experience. I don't know about others. One of the um, tools that I talked about were the um, wearable devices like the Fitbit or the Apple Watcher, the Jawbone. They they all do similar things, but they're just different brand names. And so, I my practice area was predominantly acute care, and so I worked on the cardiac floors. And when people return to doing the things they need and want to do after cardiac surgery or um, a cardiac event, one of the things they need to do is to learn how far to push their heart, especially when they're doing things that they were doing before, such as like shoveling snow. And so it's important for them to understand what their heart rate is during different activities of daily living. And so the way we traditionally do this is by using the Borg, where they rate their perceived exertion. And the research says that people's rate of perceived exertion matches their heart rate, and so we need to teach people to to learn what their heart rate feels like while they're doing different activi activities of daily living so they don't push themselves too hard. But with the Fitbit or the Fitbit Charge HR or the Apple Watch, those devices tell people their heart rate. So it was a good tool to help people, um, for the people that had such devices, it was a good tool to help them do an activity, ask them what they thought their heart rate might be, and then for them to check on their watch to see what their heart rate was. So that way they could better return to the activities that they mean want to do when they go home, but do it in a safe way so they're not pushing their heart too hard after um, whatever event brought them into the hospital. Definitely. Thank you. Um, this is Jana. I'll jump in with a personal experience that I've had with um, using telehealth for assessments. Um, as I mentioned earlier, several of the publishers, uh, Western Psychological Services and Pearson, have launched online platforms. And if you go to their websites, they have a, quite a bit of information about their platform and the HIPAA compliance features of the platform and so forth. Um, one of the assessments that I've used through telehealth is the sensory processing measure and its accompanying quick tips. And that is through uh, Western Psychological Services um, online platform. So um, I just sharing my personal experience. I don't have uh, any relationship with them, but I found it was really effective in that I was able to um, create the client profile within the secure system, and then it would email the parent of the child to complete the questionnaire, uh, which is the sensory processing measure. So it was able to give me a norm reference assessment where I could really look at these different pieces. And so after the parent completed the questionnaire, I would get a notice, and I could get then go in and it would auto score and then I could do the next step of the process which was um, in my case using the quick tips and then you know developing a treatment plan and so forth. So that was a really pleasant experience and I found it worked very smoothly um, for an asynchronous application of the assessment and then there's others you know with cycle, uh, Pearson the sensory profile too and other really popular OT assessments um, and especially the questionnaire based assessments are very amenable to that type of delivery model. So that was my experience with um, doing a, a norm reference assessment that's questionnaire based through the virtual platform and it worked really well. Okay. And this is Andy. Um, 
I have experience using uh, computer assisted and computer adapted testing at both uh, uh, as a clinician and as a researcher. As a clinician, I use the pediatric evaluation of disability inventory um, on a, a fairly regular basis to um, get a normative picture of, of self-care and mobility and social function in children with disabilities. Um, and, and the PD is uh, exceptionally good at uh, helping to monitor uh, and document change over time. And, and so that's a nice tool in terms of how we can look at the efficacy of our interventions. Uh, in the last five years or so, they have released uh, the PDCAT, so the, the Pediatric Evaluation of Disability Inventory Computer Adapted Test. And so while the domains remain the same, self-care, mobility, and social function, the assessment is now uh, administered using a computer or more typically using an iPad. Um, and because it's a computer-adapted test, the uh, respondent, who is typically the parent or caregiver of a child with a disability, um, is presented with a reduced item set. And so what the developers of that test have done is they've created a, a large bank of items, and then based on your responses to individual items, they are able to reduce the, uh, the, the number of items that you actually have to complete, um, which, which reduces you know, testing fatigue and, and the, the burden on the respondent. Um, and so we get real nice data out of the PDCAT uh, it's uh, a nice way to uh, track and, and document change over time, uh, and the reports are, are very uh, easy and accessible for us to use, um, both clinically and uh, in the research setting. Great. It sounds like you guys all have very different, unique um, experiences with it that have been very helpful. Um, based on your experience and the literature that you are aware of, um, what do you see as the benefits and drawbacks of using such technology? Well, I think the I think the big benefit, as I sort as I sort of alluded to before, is the flexibility it presents uh, or provides for us to interact with uh, our clients. Uh, you know, a lot of computer adaptive tests can be uh, done sitting at a computer. They can be done at an iPad. Uh, in some instances, they can be printed out and done on paper or verbally. They can be done by the individual, by a caregiver if need be. Uh, I think they provide us a lot of flexibility, um, more so than we've even had in the past. Uh, and that's certainly true of survey instruments, but it's also giving us big options in terms of uh, measuring things like movement uh, electronically, remotely, with uh, some of the visual sensors that are out there. Uh, one section that uh, we originally had in this uh, manuscript that we had to drop from an earlier uh, draft just due to size was all about using visual sensors, uh, things like the Kinect or webcams to measure range of motion uh, and movement disorders uh, or even behavioral issues. And those are all out there with varying levels of validation to them. Um, but again, it, speaks, uh, it really speaks to the flexibility not just in terms of administration uh, methods, but even geographically. For a lot of these, uh, for things that are delivered via telehealth, the clinician doesn't need to be in the same room or necessarily in the same state or even same country. Um, so I think it provides a lot more options than we've had in the past for conducting assessments. 
while preserving the quality of the information. And I think that's one of the big threats that we face if we're not careful, is making sure uh, not only that we collect data consistently, which the electronic platforms help us to do, but also that we ensure that uh, information is still interpreted correctly. So uh, people are always afraid, I don't want to turn my assessment over to a computer. Well, you're not turning your evaluation or your assessment over to the computer. You're turning over some of the mechanisms for collecting information, but the interpretation of that information, uh, the part that we as OTs are supposed to do, our clinical expertise, that still relies on a good clinician. Uh, so I think it, again, I think it gives us a lot of flexibility to do our jobs without detracting from and potentially even adding to uh, the clinical abilities of the OT or OTA uh, working with an individual. And this is Jana. I'll kind of echo what Bill was just saying, and I, I totally agree completely with everything, um, especially in the areas of things where there's a more specialized knowledge base like wheelchair seating and mobility, where we see good evidence where use of telehealth allows um, clients that live very you know, remote or rural locations or have mobility challenges that prevent their travel to be able to access the expertise, especially in some of those niche areas where there is a high level of, of knowledge. Um, also thinking of upper upper extremity prosthetic devices and some of the, the work that's being done with that in telehealth. Um, one thing, as Bill was mentioning, is preserving the integrity of the assessment and some considerations that I thought was interesting was with the conversion of some of our assessments. Um, I know there's some work underway with some of our visual perceptual assessments, but if you think about um, the device maybe different sizes, whether it's a smartphone or a tablet or a desktop computer, the screen size is different. Um, and so some of those kinds of things, um, as the tests are converted and digitized, it, it's an important component from the publisher side and the evidence-based side of assuring that that integrity of the assessment, the validity, and the reliability is maintained. And so that was just kind of an interesting consideration as I've been doing some research and, and, and hearing from others doing research of thinking about how long is the stimulus on the screen when it's administered through whether it's technology in person or through telehealth versus when the stimulus card is presented uh, with the person in the traditional manner. So there are some additional considerations that are very important to consider in, in keeping the integrity of the assessments. But as Bill said, it does create tremendous flexibility um, and reach as it relates to telehealth especially, and it can be done. It just has to be done um, you know, in a thoughtful way. This is Jacqueline. I agree with both Jana and Bill. Um, before, like for a new assessment to come to market, they would have to do research studies on it. They'd create the manual. They'd find a distributor. Then they would have to advertise. And so by the time it makes it into the clinic, that assessment may have been around for several years before it's widely used. But now with um, app-based assessment, a private company could create an app and they could get it out in the app store and with Facebook and social media, people can could be using the app to assess their clients in days to weeks. And so it's important to make sure that we do have due diligence with the assessments that are being used, that they have good reliability and validity so we know that they're showing what they actually think they're showing and that from 10.1 to 10.2, any changes due to changes in the patient as opposed to 
effects of testing or error or other things that we test for when we do develop uh, the psychometric properties of an assessment. That's a great point, Jacqueline, and I'm thrilled that you said it. And one thing that always, it's always a, a concern that's in the back of my head is, are people out there using apps or, or non-standardized electronic assessments that haven't gone through that rigorous development process uh, to potentially inform their, their treatments or their outcomes and doing so you know, in error. Um, but so far, the responses I've gotten from people have been uh, very cautious. I, I'm impressed by the insistence of everyone in the profession so far uh, on having good, uh, good psychometrics and good evidence behind the assessments that they're using. So I absolutely agree that it's a, if this were a SWOT analysis, I would call it a threat, something we have to watch out for. Um, but maybe it's my own ignorance. I don't think it's been a problem yet, but I, hope we, I, hope, I think we need to consciously keep it that way. Um, I'm kind of looking at the chat messages, and there's some um, discussion regarding the sensory profile. Um, would anybody like to to discuss that um, and whether they find it the online version user friendly in the reports, or it's more of a frustration to use? Well, I'll I'll just jump in. I know I've, I've been kind of following the discussion, and I think there's been um, I personally don't have experience with that particular assessment in an online component. Um, and I was just sharing that I have had more experience with the sensory processing measure through their online platform. But I think one of the things we have to think about, and what one of the the commenters mentioned, is that they had found the report to be very canned, or you know, it's, it's not very individualized, and therefore they didn't find that particularly useful. And so I think that's true of a lot of our assessments that do have auto-generated reports. Um, while there's a wonderful convenience factor to quickly being able to generate those reports, we do have to be cognizant of, of that individualization component and, and really assuring that it's meeting the needs of our clients when we do utilize some of these resources that are built into these um, online or uh, computerized assessments. Okay. Um, do anybody other? Anybody else have any comments on the sensory profile or the benefits and drawbacks of the technology that you discussed in the article? I have another. I have another benefit slash drawback. So, uh, one really cool thing about apps and wearable devices and having data from people's phones is that as OTs, we're always I'm trying to measure participation. What is participation? What's the quality of participation? What's the frequency of participation? And um, smartphones give us the opportunity to get data of like how often are people out in the community and what are what are they doing and how active people are. But at the same time, we have to make sure that our technology and our assessment doesn't invade people's privacy. So smartphones have the opportunity to um, like turn on the microphone, turn on the camera. So it's important to weigh people's privacy with the potential for getting this rich data that really speaks to a person's ability to participate in the community. Absolutely. Uh, and if I can come back real quick to, uh, to that conversation going on in the chat about whether uh, the online version of the sensory profile is user-friendly, I think that raises another really big uh, 
concern or threat to the use of uh, technology-based or technology-enhanced assessment in general. Uh, and it's something I didn't really appreciate until being on uh, sort of the, the development side and the, the business side of developing some of these tools is the need to involve designers uh, in the process. Uh, people with uh, backgrounds in visual design and computer design, uh, as in software design and uh, user experience and user interaction uh, experts. We as OTs think we're experts and we have them <laughs> and have them market cornered on how individuals interact with their tasks and their environments. And while to an extent that's true, when it really comes to understanding the tools and the devices with which we interact, uh, getting engineers, software engineers, and UX uh, user experience and engagement designers and developers on board is really crucial. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, online forms I've seen. Let's forget even about standardized assessments. How many online forms I've seen that are just atrocious uh, to navigate and to use as someone without uh, a disabling condition who has easy access to a computer. And so for our clients and also for therapists in practice who need to be able to use these tools quickly, they need to be well designed. They need to be intuitive for uh, an individual to get into and access and get the information in and out quickly and make sense of quickly. Um, so that's where I think we, we do ourselves a disservice to the extent that we don't involve other professions, especially those designers uh, who have, uh, in some cases, who have striking and surprising knowledge uh, and accessibility. Uh, I, I think we would do ourselves a disservice to ignore their contributions. I think we have to have them on board if these tools are going to be widely used and accepted. I agree okay, thank with you. Mel. There's so many options for when people are developing app and website and tablet-based assessments. Every tiny thing is based on a decision like how big a button is going to be, what font is it going to be on, what color is the font. And so that's why it's important to not only standardize the electronic assessment, but standardize it across different, um, like the tablet versus a smartphone versus a computer, because how, how people interact with the assessment can really affect their score, especially um, if the designer isn't aware of the potential impact of how button size may affect somebody's performance speed or something. Those are some great points. Thank you. Um, based on the literature research that you have done and your wealth of experience, um, have you found that there are any specific clientele with whom the technology um, you discussed is particularly effective? Uh, you know, I go back and forth on this, to be perfectly honest. Um, we, I know there is uh, research going on right now, so far unpublished, but uh, I believe in press, on uh, specifically older adults' acceptance of uh, handheld devices. And I know that's been sort of a source of conversation, is do people accept these tools? And the prevailing logic and a lot of the data that I've seen so far have said um, that even uh, that older adults are more accepting uh, of these types of tools than we think, but that doesn't really match what I saw clinically. So this is one of those cases where I have to put my, my clinical experience and my evidence-based practice 
experience side by side and say that uh, with older clients that I have worked with who did not have prior experience with an exposure to technology, uh, then acceptance was very low and we had a difficult time uh, doing any electronic assessments. And the, the difference there doesn't really seem to be age, it's about experience. Uh, so how, the, uh, how much experience an individual has with those technologies. So an older adult who uses Facebook to keep in touch with family, uh, typically very receptive to electronic and online assessments. Uh, an older adult or a young adult who uh, has never used those tools isn't going to learn them just for our purposes. That's that's my only distinction so far that I've really noticed it has had to do with experience, not age. Okay. <clears throat> Any other thoughts on particular clientele that this technology is especially effective with? There are definitely some populations who are limited in their ability to use technology. So for example, um, Fitbits and other wearable devices that track um, like how far you walk and how fast you walk are really great for people who walk, but they don't work for people in wheelchairs or people who roll because the, the pattern of movement is so different that the, like, the things like Fitbits and Jawbones, they just are not able to pick up movement like they are for for people who walk. And similarly, for people with stroke, they might have an altered gait pattern, and so the wearable device might not be as accurate for people with um, an abnormal gait pattern than people with a typical gait pattern. So it's important to make sure that the assessment you want to use is, is appropriate for the population that you want to use it with. But as an educator, um, I do think that technology-based assessment is particularly effective for um, digital, the digital native population. So as an educator, I teach the, the Coleman Evaluation of Living Skills. And we did the CALS, the old version, and the new version. And out of 60 students, only four of my students knew how to handwrite a check. Um, but they all knew how to do the online banking. So I'm super excited for the newest version of the CALS that really looks at computer skills and has that computer-based component. And I know one thing I've encountered as an educator or students on some of the assessments, I think like the CALS that require you to use a phone book, students nowadays really don't know how to use a phone book. <laughs> Um, along similar lines, um, based on, again, your li literature review and your experience, are there any certain practice settings where you found this technology you've discussed um, to be particularly effective? Um, this is Jana. I'll jump in. As far as where some of the evidence has demonstrated the use with telehealth, um, some interesting applications, of course, uh, with the wheelchair and seating component, as I mentioned before, there's some good evidence around that. Um, also, one thing that was interesting, there was a study, comparative efficacy study, looking at um, in-person versus telehealth. And um, again, it's, it's interesting to see where, again, as Bill was mentioning earlier, the flexibility that's afforded with, with telehealth. So as we're seeing these clientele and these practice settings where there's a high level of knowledge base specific to kind of a specialty area like prosthetics or, or uh, wheelchair seating, um, knowing the different um, options that are available and, and very current on that knowledge base, 
um, using telehealth uh, in those practice settings has shown to be uh, very beneficial um, as well as more general settings. Okay. Um, <clears throat> does anybody have any advice or suggestions um, for clinicians that are trying to fund and utilize such technology in their clinical practice? I'll jump in real quick. This is Dana again. I was just going to say as far as um, some of the applications we've talked about, um, they're not tremendously expensive in the sense of the technologies used um, as far as sometimes desktop or iPads and those sorts of things. Um, I'm finding that more and more of the clients have access to, to these technologies. Um, there's specifically around telehealth, there's applications of software now that are HIPAA compliant that are quite affordable. Um, some of the ones that come to mind like Zoom for Healthcare or Cisco WebEx and, and different ones that have um, a telehealth um, intent for those so they have higher levels of privacy and security. Um, and again, those aren't high, highly expensive um, to utilize those softwares um, as a clinician in order to use these technologies. Um, and then publishers of the assessments that we've been talking about some in this, in this conversation, um, it's interesting how they've been, their pricing model, like for me, when I use um, some of these online administrations, they actually allow you to purchase the online administrations in groups of like five or t 10 administrations. So it's, I, I purchased those, I'm an independent contractor, so I purchased those out of pocket, but it's, you know, after having already had the manual, the administration component is like a per-use basis. And so that's kind of an interesting pricing model, but it's very affordable. Uh, the only bit of advice I would have uh, would be uh, really that it's about convincing management that it's worth uh, the facility spending the money to get these assessments. So if you can demonstrate or even rationally explain uh, a good cost-benefit ratio here, uh, so in our case uh, with implementing the AMPAC, it was about fulfilling requirements for tracking outcomes. Uh, we, we had to have a tool that tracked outcomes, and we thought that that was the most uh, appropriate tool for doing so. So it was a pretty easy sell, even though it was a fairly uh, expensive uh, assessment for a small clinic. Uh, so if you have a tool that can measure your outcomes better than what you're doing currently and that can potentially save the facility money, I think it gets to be an easy sell. But as far as identifying outside funding sources, uh, I'm afraid I'm no, ho or no help. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, the funding issue uh, is, a, is a difficult one. Uh, in using uh, this technology uh, myself, I have uh, come to appreciate the value of, uh, you know, doing test runs or dry runs. Um, you know, whenever you're using a new technology, I think you have the, the uh, potential to run into a snag. And so um, to the extent that you're able to, to, um, to identify those before you're with a client, to work through them, to problem solve them, I think makes the client experience uh, more positive and then increases uh, the likelihood that they'll be receptive to uh, technologies in the future. Okay. Um, and something else I'm interested in hearing about is, um, based on your clinical experience or the, the research that you read, what is the, the client's response to um, 
being asked to use some of this technology? Uh, again, as I mentioned before, for me, the response was largely dependent on their prior experience. Um, and beyond that, <laughs> there have actually been times where, uh, where I use some of the online evaluation tools, uh, at least in a practice run, as an intervention of sorts, or even as an informal evaluation on its own to see if someone could navigate and understand uh, electronic software uh, for someone who is returning to a, a very high demand uh, a very high cognitive demand uh, uh, job. So uh, almost universally, the people who had prior experience were receptive. Um, but it, the interesting part to me was even the people who had very limited prior experience, uh, I had a number of clients, and this is strictly anecdotal. I don't have data to back this up. I don't know if anyone has ever considered uh, uh, researching this or, or putting numbers behind it, the number of people who had little to no uh, prior exposure to electronic communication tools uh, in particular really seemed to, in some instances, respond well and get some, uh, some joy and excitement out of, out of learning something new. So if you have an inquisitive person uh, who maybe has no experience, they also have tended in my anecdotal sort of one-off experience to be to be receptive. They may require more training than your more experienced user. Uh, but people are generally game, and it's it's much like, well, it's, it's actually exactly like any other assessment uh, that we do in OT. If it's presented well, presented uh, sort of at the level that the person is at, and they can interact with the, the tool, I've, I've had almost universally good experience in those cases. Um, and we had a comment in the, the chat room that um, most elementary school students are asked to complete curriculum technology-based assessments um, and that they've received referrals to work on those computer skills. So that's, that's another area to consider as well. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, there is an article that came out recently uh, out of Australia, I believe, that does refute the... Uh, this isn't the goal of the paper, but part of what it ended up doing was refuting the assumption that younger people are uh, more tech savvy and open to using technology. And that's where that's part of what really informed my distinction between uh, age versus experience. Uh, a look at uh, managing Gen Y practitioners. Uh, so. Uh, generation-wide practitioners, this, this first generation that was thought to be brought up in the digital age and to have been you know, engrossed in technology from the very beginning, uh, they actually, uh, in surveys of therapists and of people and of managers of therapists in that age group, uh, actually revealed surprising uh, discomfort with technology or at least lack of confidence in their abilities. Uh, so... I think it is, again, important that we dissociate age from it, but kids in elementary school certainly are getting more experience uh, than, than we ever did as kids. So I think, the, I think the person who made that comment is probably onto something. Uh, but I think, again, it's about the, the uh, experience rather than the age. And I think that we could always go back to our uh, OT bread and butter of activity analysis where we watch the client doing the task, break down the steps, and understand 
what aspects of the task they need help with. And that works from everything from toileting to computer skills and so activity analysis is such a fundamental skill. But it seems like there's definitely a role for technology to help us standardize the assessment and compare one person's performance to other people's performance or compare someone's performance to performance over time. Definitely. Um, and then there was another question brought up in the chat room um, on whether or not there's been any discussions initiated at the national organizational level um, to consider establishing funding mechanisms to explore some of these issues related to developing technology-based assessments. Um, is anyone aware of any conversations related to that? I think if anyone would be familiar with those, Janet, it might be you, but I'm unaware of anything specifically looking at uh, technology and assessment. Am I missing anything? No, I was just trying to think back. I know um, AOTF has funded a number of um, grants around occupational therapy, and I know some related to telehealth but not specific to assessment, although there may be a component of assessment um, specifically looking at with autism and, and supporting families. Um, I know the publishers are very interested in doing research. Of course, they have the tools and they need the clinicians and the um, patient populations to do, you know, studies with. So I think partnerships at that level might be advantageous. And so um, I've not personally pursued that, but I've heard interest from publishers. And so that might be an avenue to explore um, some support for funding uh, through um, the publishers of some of these uh, assessments. And to your point, Jenna, AOTF does have the Intervention Research Grant Program. And I believe, I have not submitted for or gotten any of that funding myself, but uh, from colleagues that have applied, uh, I believe part of their request in there uh, does look at, uh, I'm even trying to pull this up as I look now, uh, their trying to lay the groundwork for larger studies to evaluate the effectiveness of OT interventions on occupation participation and health. And I know for at least some of the people uh, who have applied for those, uh, they've included uh, looking at better assessments to assess uh, efficacy or effectiveness of interventions. So I think that is one possible approach there is the, uh, the AOTF intervention uh, grant mechanism. And large funders like the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, um, this is something that's definitely on their radar. And I know that uh, people are successfully getting funded through traditional mechanisms to develop technology-based uh, assessment or to transfer an assessment to a technology. For example, I just um, one mechanism that is particularly helpful for technology development is the small the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Grant, is that right? Uh, yes. Um, and so I just saw an SBIR that was funded, so I study medication adherence. And um, one, the best way to measure medication adherence where you know for sure the person took it is direct observation. And for historically, for that to happen, people had to come into the doctor's office and they had to take the medication in front of um, a practitioner or a researcher of some sort and go home. And so that's just not feasible. So they, the people who had their SBIR funded, um, from what it sounded like, it sounded like 
kind of like Skype, but it was more secure and basically the purpose of the app, people installed it on their phone, they were enrolled in a research study, and a researcher called them up and watched them take the medication through, um, through video on the phone. That's a great point, Jacqueline. So you've got the NIH mechanisms there, and with the SBIR, it specifically breaks out into phase one and phase two. And I think the phase one in particular is where they really encourage uh, looking at some of the, uh, the feasibility and effects of measurements. Phase two tends to be more for commercialization, but I think you could do a lot with that first phase. Um, and then along those lines, too, for clinicians who may be out there in practice uh, who fear they don't have the time or the institutional support to go about developing or adapting existing measures or developing new measures or adapting existing measures. Again, this is where I'll put in a bit of a plug uh, for those of us on the academic side who are looking for collaborators and who want to play. Uh, my primary research interest right now is looking uh, at applications of technologies and novel technologies to rehab. And for me, that includes evaluation and assessment. Uh, there are uh, groups all over the place uh, I think of uh, Alan Jetty as, a, as an obvious example with far more experience than, than I have. Uh, but there are those of us who, uh, who are hungry and want to play and have access to and, and, can, and have experience writing grants to get funding to develop these types of things. So if there's someone out there who's just dying for a tool, uh, seek out the right person to help you develop it. I think the, I think the opportunities are there. Great, thank you so much. Um, is there anything um, additional any of you would like to discuss or mention to our listeners? I know one thing we discussed earlier is um, that there's definitely a, a learning curve to some of these technology-based assessments. And I do want to give another shout out to um, the, oh, man, it just flew from my head. Andy, what's the app? There's Appy Hour at AOTA conference, and there's um, what are the other tech sessions called? So on Saturday of conference, uh, there are Saturday is Tech Day, and there are three Tech Day sessions. Uh, two of those sessions are uh, dedicated to technologies of all types, and then one of the sessions is dedicated to the many ways that practitioners. Uh, and researchers are using apps uh, in practice. So uh, you know, whether those be apps that uh, directly support uh, clients and are used with clients or whether they be apps that are um, of more benefit to the therapist themselves, you know, perhaps on the documentation or productivity side. We've been running that session Sorry about that. I just I just lost my uh, headset. Um, Happy Hour has been running for the last three years, uh, and we've featured uh, you know just a great variety uh, of apps um, from all areas of practice. The response from conference attendees has been uh, overwhelmingly positive, and so I know that um, this uh, that mechanism, Happy Hour, will continue uh, to be a, a feature of 
uh, AOTA's conference and tech day uh, for years to come. And I believe Rachel Prophet uh, will be taking uh, that initiative over in the in the coming years. And that's correct, Andy. And it is confirmed that uh, that Happy Hour will happen again this year. And uh, as you said, for the foreseeable future. And Rachel uh, is uh, is heading that up. And uh, it's a bit too early to make an official announcement, but to anyone who is interested in tech sessions at AOTA, uh, keep your eyes open when conference announcements uh, start coming out. Uh, there's the, well, I would, I would say potential. There will be some exciting new sessions coming up uh, surrounding Tech Day and Appy Hour. Uh, so without saying too much more, keep your eyes peeled and, and prepare to, to have a good time. Yeah, it's always exciting to see some of the new technology that's out there. Exactly. Um, any parting thoughts or words before we end the call? Well, just a thank you to you, Megan, as your, as uh, as our host here, uh, and for everyone listening. Uh, as I said, I think we this is an area that we're all passionate about. Our various little sub areas of it, especially so. If anyone wants to continue the discussion, please join us, and, and we all we want to play. Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful. Well, I want to thank um, all of all of you for being with us today and for writing your wonderful article, "Current Trends in Assessment and Technology." Um, thank you for you know joining us today to talk about your work, and thank you as well to all who listened to us either live um, by phone or online. And to those of you listening to the archived version of this virtual chat, if you have additional questions, uh, please log on to the TSIS forum on OT Connections to continue this conversation, which has actually been recommended just now on the chat, um, chat room. Um, the easiest way to find our OT Connections forum is to go to aota.org backslash TSIS and to click the link in the resources section. Um, again, that's www w.aota.org backslash TSIS, look under resources, and click the Technology SIS discussion form. Also, please plan to join us in December when we will talk to Holly Cohen about her article, Assistive Technology, an Occupational Therapy Perspective on the Importance of Making, Inclusion, and Use. Until then, on behalf of the Technology Special Interest Section, I'm Megan Collins. Thank you very much for joining us. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.